Hello and welcome to our In The Zone podcast focusing on vaccine and vaccine assay development. I'm delighted to be joined by Cyril Bonham from PPD Laboratory Services, who oversees the R&D laboratory activities and has academic experience focused on bacterial and viral infectious diseases. Great to have you here. Thank you for having me and very happy to talk to you today about vaccines. Great. So getting straight into the podcast, what are the advantages and disadvantages of utilising non-viral, such as mRNA or DNA-based vaccine technologies for vaccine development? Okay, so this is a bit of a tricky question, and to answer it properly, I would like to give a bit of historics on vaccines first before we dive into uh, the non, non-viral. So historically, the first vaccine uh, were made with live attenuated organisms. They're called live attenuated attenuated vaccines, sorry. Example of those are chickenpox, measles, mumps, rubella. They are highly effective. Uh, and usually in those cases, just one or two doses can give you long-term immunity. Uh, they do come in a problem, uh, though, because they are live virus, they may not be suitable for everybody, particularly if you have um, immune disorder and so on and so forth. Along with those vaccines, just to be thorough, there is what is also called toxoid vaccine. It's the same principle, but instead of vaccinating somebody with a full virus, uh, you're vaccinated again a toxin. Uh, example of those are tetanus and diphtheria, where the toxin in very low dose is injected as part of a vaccine and your body will respond to, uh, to this toxin. The next generation uh, was what is called inactivate vaccines. Uh, that is a case for hepatitis A, the flu shot, rabies. Uh, this is a version of a virus who is no longer alive and he's meant to trigger a response once injected. It is safer, but because it is an inactive vaccine, meaning a dead virus, um, the protection is usually short-lived. Then we come to what was the best vaccine out there before mRNA and DNA vaccine came around, who was Subunit slash recombinant slash polysaccharide, everything was known under conjugate vaccine. The idea for those vaccines here was instead of injecting somebody with a whole virus or whole bacteria, only inject with one protein or one polysaccharide or maybe a couple of those proteins that we know were uh, antigenic, where the body will respond and, and create a strong immune response. Um, and so this was the latest before the mRNA and DNA. Speaking of the mRNA and DNA, the logic here is the same as those subunit recombinant vaccine. The only difference is the vehicle. Before with conjugate vaccine, you were still injecting the protein directly in the host to trigger an immune response. In the case of the mRNA and DNA, what you are doing is injecting either messenger RNA or a plasmid containing the DNA who will enter the cell and have the host on cell produce the protein of interest. If I take the example of COVID, you want those cells to produce the spike protein from COVID to generate an immune response. So now that we have the history and understanding that 
what makes the DNA and mRNA vaccine unique is the vehicle, not as much what they are expressing. Some of the advantage and disadvantage for them, knowing that there is small difference between the two. But the main advantage with two of these is that it's much easier and much, much, much faster to produce. Uh, this means those vaccines can be generated and can be updated if we think about the COVID and, and the different variant much faster than a classical uh, vaccine. This is both an advantage and a disadvantage. Uh, it becoming a disadvantage in the sense that this is a new platform and coming from my point of view where here at PPD we develop vaccines to measure immunogenicity, meaning measure antibody response to those vaccines, usually in human serum. When we used to have a lot of time to think about what is it we will develop for a future candidate vaccine, uh, and by a lot of time, I'm talking about maybe years, this has been significantly cut down with this technology. Now, the other advantage also could be a disadvantage for those two technologies is that in particular mRNA vaccine, they produce a higher human response. Okay, this is because of the way they use to have the human body generate the, the protein of interest, uh, the antigenic protein. And so this greater human response could be a good thing because this means your body will have a stronger response. You may have better protection, but the stronger your response means also that you may have stronger side effects. Some of the examples. Uh, we've seen, for example, for the COVID again, is the high fever. This is somebody, something that people were not used to anymore. And those high fever were more, like, more likely linked to the extremely high response from, from the host to, to the human, to the antigen. So those are the two uh, advantage and both disadvantage for using non-viral, such as mRNA and DNA. The speed at which they come. Uh, make it harder for us and to develop essay in a much shorter time. And then the fact that they are so efficient, they create a higher human response uh, could be a great thing, but who does generate usually more side effects. That's, that's so interesting. If we explore some of the considerations further, what are some important considerations when assessing immune response during clinical trials and what assays are currently available to meet these requirements? Okay, so for that, usually my, my main recommendation will be three different points. Uh, the first one is while you're designing your clinical trial and you want to look at the human response is what will you do with the data? What is this data generated and what is it going to be used for? Uh, the question we are trying to answer here is, is this data will be used as a primary endpoint to support, for example, the efficacy and immunogenicity of your vaccine? Is it going to be a secondary endpoint or will that be an exploratory endpoint? What it means is we are trying to refine what level of compliance will be needed um, from the essay to support your clinical trial. So that's the first point. What data are you trying to get? And what compliance do we need to have to have your data accepted by the different agency? Outside of a quality point of view, the second question is really, what are you looking at? What response? And by that, there is 
two, maybe three uh, different avenues when you're, you're looking at immunogenicity for vaccine in broad stroke. The first one is you want to measure your immunoglobulin response. So this is you've injected a vaccine into a patient. You want to see if a patient is generating antibodies. Okay, you want to measure antibodies who ideally bind to the protein of interest. Again, the case of SARS, you want to measure antibody who bind to a spike protein. You want to do that in IgG or IgM or IgA or all three, that kind of detail. But that's that's done through ELISA, that's total immunoglobulin. The second portion is functional assay. Although you may generate a significant immune response, you may have your body generate a lot of antibody. Not all of those antibody are useful and not all of those antibody have the same role. Among the antibody generated as a result of a vaccination, you may have some antibody who are called functional antibody. This is true for both virus vaccine and bacterial vaccine. Those functional antibody are the holy grail for any vaccine. What they means in the case of a viral uh, vaccine is that those antibody will be able to block a virus from even infecting the host. Okay. In terms of a bacterial vaccine, this means those antibody will be able to mediate the kill of a bacteria again before it even infects the host. Again, I insist that this is a holy grail for vaccine because sometimes people have, have a tendency to, to confuse things and said, oh, I got vaccinated, I'm immune. Vaccination doesn't necessarily mean 100% immunity. The immunity in the fact that you will never get sick from the disease you are protected against means that you have a strong response in functional antibody. In the case of virus, you have a strong population of antibody who will block the virus for even infected yourself. Although this is a holy grail, it doesn't happen all the time and it never happens 100%. That's why for flu, for example, it's not that uncommon to get infected with flu virus despite the fact that you got the flu vaccine. But the difference is hopefully, even if you got infected, you were sick for two to three days instead of being sick for a week or more and maybe ended up at the hospital or worst. So those are the number two. I mentioned there's a third one. That's what we will call CMI. It's pretty much an evaluation of cell immunity uh, response to the vaccine. It is not always primary endpoint or secondary. It, it's very much uh, usually exploratory, and it's uh, more for a scientific team to understand how the vaccine is actually processed by the body and answered by the body from a chemical point of view. So again, those are the consideration is what response are you looking for? Do you want to quantify your total antibodies? And among your total antibody, do you want to quantify the functional antibody, those holy grail antibody who will actually protect you against the agent? The last question, it's much more practical and technical in terms of consideration for a clinical trial is what population are you targeting? And by population, I mean, are we going to be in adult human patient? Are we going to be in pediatric? Are we going to be in neonatal? What it means is how much sample volume-wise will be available for us to test. And this will trigger 
different strategy from uh, from the essay development point of view as to what can we do with the amount of serum available. You can imagine that although it's not a problem to get five, even sometimes 10 ml from an adult patient, you will not get such volume from a neonatal uh, or even an early pediatric infant. So those are the three points for consideration uh, when assessing the human response for clinical trial. Great. If we now sort of look back on how far the field has progressed, how has assay technology developed in the last 10 years? So the technology has evolved toward multiplexing for both the ELISA, the quantification of immunoglobulin, and the functionality that, that I explained earlier. And this is led by two facts. The first one that I just talked about is the population and the volume uh, of sample available. You have to think as well that with a given volume, let's say, of serum, we'll try to do as many tests as possible to gather as much information as possible so the patient don't have to get blood drawn as often, so it's less invasive in the patient. So this means there's a pressure to do tests uh, with as little material as we can. And one of the answer to that pressure is to use multiplexing. What it means is in a given plate, on a given well in this plate, instead of being able to test one sample against, let's say, one antigen, you're, not able, you're now able to test that against multiple antigens. 10 antigen, 20 antigen, and so on and so forth, all within this one well. So instead of having to do 10 different essay and using 10 times the volume, now you get all of that answer with one essay, one time the volume, uh, all in one go. The other reason push for this multiplexing is the time. Uh, you can imagine that if you have to test a sample 10 times for 10 different answer, it will take you longer than if you test it only once and you get all 10 answers in one go. Uh, and this has been driven initially mostly with bacterial vaccine. And the reason for that is when you come to bacterial vaccine, there is often a lot of different serotype, serogroup within the same bacteria. This means a good example will be a streptococcus pneumoniae, where the first version of a successful vaccine there was what is called a seven valent. So it contains seven serotype, and then it went to a 13, and so on and so forth. Uh, so this is what initially has pushed us on the vaccine side to the multiplexing. But COVID obviously has skyrocketed the demand when it comes to this multiplexing. So this is what the technology has been moving toward within the last 10 years. So finally, because we sort of looked at the field for the past, uh, if we look towards the future, how has the COVID-19 pandemic changed vaccine development and how has this affected assay technologies? So from how did it change vaccine development? My answer is timeline, timeline and timeline. We used to have a year, sometime more, between or to perform essay development, essay qualification, validation, be ready for phase three high throughput clinical testing. And very often it was actually more than a year. And we had this time because it took a significant amount of time to manufacture the product. 
and to move through the different steps. The mRNA in particular completely changed the paradigm. What used to take months and months to generate a product is now done in a matter of one week. And so we were faced at the beginning of a COVID pandemic with requests to have validated essay. Validated essay means it's essay who will be switchable to test human clinical sample to support high phase two, phase two B, as well as phase three. So it's it's really for approval of a vaccine. This is a complicated essay with a lot of regulation to put in place. But instead of having the usual one year, we had only two months to do it. This was a main, main, main challenge for us with the COVID-19 pandemic toward the vaccine development. In terms of assay technology, I mentioned before the multiplexing. COVID definitively continued to take advantage of the multiplexing, particularly when you think about all of the variants. But COVID as a whole, from my point of view, has reduce, uh, I would say, the portfolio of technology available. And this is linked with timeline again. This means that only the provider who have been able to put together the product very early on and were onboarded early on have became the gold standard for everybody to use. For ELISA, in terms of COVID, I'm thinking about mesoscale technology. This has become the de facto uh, gold standard uh, that everybody uses. And this has happened because the government has selected this technology. And since all the early data has been set up against this, it's, it effectively became uh, the measuring stick for everything else after that. And the trick there, if you figure it, let's say you were a little late on generating your product for COVID, as a late arrival, you will have to demonstrate equivalence to the gold standard methodology. And that will require additional time to do, and that will require additional cost. And so this is very difficult to bring on alternative or new technology compared to those established essay. Again, keep in mind the timeline when it comes to the COVID pandemic. Despite that, though, I want to mention that PPD has been pushing to improve on those technologies. We do use, uh, like most people, for example, for ELISA, COVID ELISA, uh, MSD technology, but we do improve upon them to achieve a better range uh, and more importantly, a better precision. Uh, we've done the same exercise as well when it comes to the functional essay for COVID, where we improve upon the gold standard technology toward better precision, higher quality results. So this is what we have been able to do with performing equivalents, with investment toward those technologies. Great. Thank you so much for joining me today, Cyril, and for sharing your thoughts on vaccine assay development. Thank you very much for having me. And to our listeners, you can find out more information at www.bionarsisone.com. 